This is Shelf Marks and I'm Zoe Cummins, podcaster in residence at the Royal Irish Academy. This week we're mostly talking about the weather and a little later I'll meet writer Neil Hegarty to talk, well, more about the weather and hear his specially commissioned writing for this, the last episode in the Shelf Marks series. It's Wednesday in Dublin, 1879. Let's say December. December the 1st, heavy rain and high wind at southwest, succeeded by variable weather, but mostly dry. You knock at the door of 6 Cavendish Row on Dublin's fashionable north side. Until the 10th, on the night of which there was a storm at west or southwest. The house of Richard Kerwin, chemist, barrister. Dry, wind northwest. 13th, wet. Wind southwest. You're shown into a room 14, of men dry. discussing philosophy, Nine, science, dry. geology, and of course, the weather. I have met no account of the quantities of rain that annually or monthly fall in Ireland, nor any account of the weather. The host, Mr. Kerwin, landowner, mineralogist, stretches his lean frame along his couch, wrapped in a blanket, a fire blazing in the grate. Even with his guests there, he lies swaddled, his hat on. He always, always has his hat on for fear of catching cold. His interest in the weather is scientific and personal. If we had tables of the quantities of rain that fall in each month for 80 or 100 years, we might calculate the mean proportion of each and in time approach very near the truth. At 7pm, Mr. Kerwin, meteorologist, eccentric, instructs his servant Pope to remove the door knocker so no more people could enter. He doesn't like to be disturbed. This weekly get-together is part of Richard Kerwin's routine. Routine that he prizes and relies upon. His personal regimes are as much talked about as his scientific achievements and failures. It's true some of his key theories don't hold up now, but the men discuss experiments and further ideas and figure out things we didn't know then, but do now. We didn't know about oxygen or sewing machines or bicycles or even matches to strike. We didn't even use the word scientist to describe these cultivators of science. So we can forgive Richard Kerwin's flawed theories. His most debated and debunked was about the flammable elements of air. Phlogiston theory led to decades of experiments on the combustion and makeup of air, which ultimately ended with the discovery of oxygen. People have told and retold the story of Kerwin's life and his so-called obsessions. Each telling contains more or less the same facts both professional and personal. It always begins and ends with the weather. The main anecdote about Kerwin always mentions how he avoids the cold at all costs. There are many other intriguing facts. One, he only ever eats ham and drinks milk. His servant Pope cooks the ham once a week and reheats it daily. Two, Kerwin always dines alone due to a phobia of swallowing. Eating causes convulsions better managed in private. Three, on a daily caloric. That's a walk to you and me. He clamps his mouth shut to keep out germs. He hates flies. Detests and fears flies. Four, he trains to become a priest, but his brother is killed in a duel. This is the 18th century after all. So he comes home to look after his family estate in Galway. Five, he spends his wedding night in jail. His mother-in-law hasn't told him how much his new wife is in debt. 
As her freshly minted husband, he becomes immediately responsible for this. 6. He qualifies as a barrister, though dislikes it and returns to chemistry. 7. He undertakes important studies on mineral composition, on rock formation, meteorology, the richness of Dublin milk. He writes papers on dyeing, tanning and malting, salt and metals, volcanic theory and coal. Papers on happiness, weeds, soil, manure, musical harmonies, religion, and interpretations of the apocalypse. 8. To keep his body at what he deduces is the correct temperature, his servant pours tea into his mouth twice overnight from the spout of a teapot. 9. Towards the end of his life he devises the best way to bleach linen on an industrial scale and measures the height of the McGillicuddy Reeks and… you get the picture. Richard Kerwin was the second president of the Royal Irish Academy, a polymath, a thinker, a doer. And to be fair to him and his fears, they weren't unfounded. Richard Kerwin dies of complications relating to a cold in 1812. Was it the moisture in the air, the damp, the cold, the Irish climate that did it? Perhaps knowing more about fevers and viruses and even the weather could have prevented it? After all, he'd done his best to predict the weather. He was one of the first to forecast using data gathered from his own measurements in his back garden in Dublin. He charts all his observations to see patterns and predict the coming season. He isn't content with the vague idea of wet or dry. He wants to quantify, to measure, to define. If the quantity of rain that falls in seven hours be only about half a pound, it is called only a mizzle. Kerwin evolves a theory of air masses. He classifies them as polar, tropical and marine. He wants to know exactly, scientifically, the makeup of each day, each season. Spring contains 61 days. It rains, if wet, 36 days. His predictions become so important that farmers wait to sow their crops until they know the details of his latest forecast. We see that in 41 years there were six wet springs, 22 dry and 13 very Kerwin publishes annual weather seasons. records in the transactions of the Royal Irish Academy from 1788 1808. 50,000 observations. His garden in Dublin holds the first accurate meteorological station in Ireland. We're still fascinated by the weather. We rely on it. Our 21st century worldwide observations and data are now neatly packaged in smartphone weather apps. The weather is always with us. It's as small as your glimpse at the sky from the window as you plan your own day. It's you looking at a field, wondering if it's ready for planting. It's humanity's climate plans for the future. More than ever, we can see why Richard Kerwin's worries about the weather ring true, and so understand why he brought the study of weather in from the cold. My guest now on Shelf Marks is Neil Hegarty. Neil grew up in Derry. His novels include The Jewel, published in 2019, and Inch Levels, which was shortlisted for the Kerry Group Novel of the Year in 2017. Other titles include Frost, That Was the Life That Was, a biography of David Frost, and The Story of Ireland, which accompanies a BBC RTE television history of Ireland. His essays and short fiction have appeared in the Dublin Review, Stinging Fly, Tangerine and Elsewhere, and he's a regular literary reviewer for the Irish Times and Dublin Review of Books. 
I met him at his home in Dublin City. Everything is sort of bedding down for the winter now. When we bought the house, which was back in 2013, this whole back garden was... The best word to use about the garden was it was entombed. It was completely covered in cobble lock red brick and the red brick had turned black with time and nothing was growing and it was a it was a wasteland. There was only there's only one little thing. Do you see in the photograph there's a little tiny holly tree? I do see that, yeah. Coming valiantly through the bricks and then if you turn around you'll see the sort of seven foot high holly tree now. So that's growing that tall in seven years, which it just goes to show if you give nature a chance it will come back. Um, and now you can see we've got green gauge trees, we've got cherry trees, we've got lots of different kinds of currants, lots of different kinds of roses. We have a pergola and we're hoping to, uh, to get lots of roses clambering up there next summer. We have a, a fig tree in the corner which has actual figs. I have to say the figs look really quite appetising even though they're quite small and they're, they're, they have a long way to go. I might be uh, stealing <laughs> over your wall <laughs> when they're ripe. I really didn't think that the figs would flourish in an Irish garden. I thought, no, figs are for France, figs are for Spain. But we got such a harvest of figs, I didn't know what to do with them all. There's piles of them ev everywhere. And I was, I was just so, so amazed at what kind of bounty it, it gives, gives out. And of course, it's very, very beautiful as well. So for Shelf Marks Neil, you've written about watching the weather. As a writer, it really pays to notice the specifics of a day, doesn't it? Yeah, I think so. If you're writing a scene, if you're, if you're, if you're setting up a certain part of the, of the narrative, you have to feel your way into, into the context of that scene, into what's going on in that place at that time, what's happening in the sky. You have to see it with your own eyes. You have to see it in your mind's eye. And then... Once you have that landscape, but also that weatherscape set up, then the writing comes better. It flows more like water, is the hope. The, the words on the page will glow that little bit more so that people can feel it and see it and experience it for themselves when they come to read your, your words. That's the theory. So I'd been in Derry in October seeing my parents and the weather was lovely so we decided we would take a little spin up the coast of Loch Sully towards Dunree Head. There's, there's an old um, naval station there and it's a lovely spot as you can imagine being, being Donegal. And the, it was a beautiful morning, the sea was blue and the sky was blue, the air wasn't even especially cold. But the weather, it also decided to put on a little floor show for us. So there was a, a rainstorm coming across the sea at us and there was a rainbow playing in the middle of the rain and it stuck in my head as exactly the sort of extreme thing that Donegal does very, very well, where you have this extreme beauty. You also have this, this sense of the elemental aspect of the weather and it was all there in front of us and I wanted to capture it in words to take a portrait of it as well as I could. When I was last in Derry in my home place for the weekend I spent a good deal of time watching the weather. Nothing strange about this of course, it's the Irish way of a piece with checking what we should wear, pack, bring with us as we venture forth. 
an umbrella, a coat with a hood, light shoes or heavier shoes, glance up and out at the weather and work with the grain of the day. On this occasion though, I was spending my time watching the weather come rapidly towards me, as is the way, I think, the further west and north you go in Ireland. On the October day I'm thinking about, I took a spin with my father north out of Derry and along the Loxwilly coast of Inishowen, as far as Dunree Head. Dunree was one of the treaty ports handed back by the British in 1938, and you can see why they wanted to hang on to it. The fort stands out there on its own craggy headland, just where the loch widens into the open Atlantic. It commands all the swilly approaches and its deep anchorages, and surveys a wide sweep of ocean. Dunree faces all the winds that blow. We thought we might get a cup of tea in the museum cafe, and sure enough it was open and pretty much empty of people on that October morning, and we hoped it would be empty of the coronavirus too. What I remember from that Saturday though was not so much the cup of tea, and not even the restorative marshmallow and date and desiccated coconut packed 15, a northern delicacy, which accompanied the cup of tea, but rather the weather, which was in a determined frame of mind. The weather. It was heading purposefully towards us from the west as we arrived in the car park. We estimated we had two minutes to make it to the cafe or we'd be soaked. Later, as we left the cafe, duly fortified and buzzing with sugar, the weather was heading towards us again. We had two minutes to reach the car. On both occasions, long, billowing, loosely woven curtains of rain, not grey, but silver white with sunshine, and shot through with rainbow threads, moving across Loch Swilly. On both occasions, the sky clear and blue above, and the sea blue on the edges of the curtain, and the distant hills of Fanet, green below and purple above, and all as it should be in the world. Later, as we drove back to Derry, the skies cleared completely and the loch shimmered and we stopped at Fawn for a walk on the strand. Now in the far northern distance, Dunree stood out on its rocky promontory, domed by the sky, and we could see there would be no more rain that day. No more weather, you might say. The hills were settled now and blue, and there was nothing coming out of the west towards us. Our casual weather expertise. Because the weather in Ireland makes profits out of us all, we don't even think very much of the skill that comes from in a trice, measuring the light, glancing at the west or the east, seeing a lightning or a darkening, and understanding what this lightning or darkening might precisely mean. We are professionals, and we don't give ourselves enough credit for the fact. We develop this feeling for the weather early. It becomes woven with the stuff of our lives and of our hearts. We learn to identify with those, with mariners, with farmers, who must especially contend with the weather's vagaries, moods, threats. I think in particular of the chanting poetry of the shipping forecast on the radio. At first it's noon outing when I was too young to be at school, and then it's tea time outing when I was home from school and ravenous. Much later I sometimes heard it after midnight if I was studying virtuously for exams. I receive. Shannon, Rockall, Mallon, Hebrides, Bailey. I liked Mallon best because I could congratulate myself on having actually been to Mallon Head, imagine. And I liked the late shipping forecast best 
The incantation was then at its most powerful, and even the landlubber might readily imagine the weather out there, the dark skies, the mountainous seas, the wind backing northeasterly, gale force 8 strengthening to severe gale force 9 later. The language, the poetry, brought with it a comprehension of how to stand for a little while in someone else's shoes, to regard the world for a little while from behind someone else's eyes. It brought with it togetherness, an understanding that we are all in it as one under our vast, heady atmosphere. It brought what John Berger might call a way of seeing, a way of regarding the great world that I've never forgotten, a sense of connectedness that has always stood me in good stead. This is what the weather does when we take a reading, when we look at it coming towards us across the fields, across the sea, it places us in the world. What I really enjoyed in the piece was that you said that the weather in Ireland makes profits uh, out of us all, which, and I think there's a lot of truth in the cliche that we're all obsessed by the weather. Uh, it, it affects our moods, it affects our livelihoods. But when it comes to writing, you know, fictional storms, fictional heat waves, snow, rain, um, what role do you think that they play in fiction? And, and what do they do for the reader to have things play out against a particular type of weather? I think in the past that I would have said something about the pathetic fallacy that we, we put down on the page, the weather behaving in the sort of way that um, will, will fit with the drama or the novel or the story that you're writing. I think nowadays though my, my thinking has changed and I, I am very interested in the way that the weather isn't just the wallpaper or the background of our lives. It's, it's woven into the way that we think and the way that we behave, the way that our spirits are raised or lowered by the context that we're moving in. It's uh, absolutely, it seems to me, it's uh, embedded in the very stuff of our lives. And for that reason, I'm interested in constantly taking soundings, I think is a good word, taking soundings of what's going on in a certain place at a certain time. How is, it, how is, is this affecting me? And then, of course, as a writer, observing how it's affecting other people too, how it's changing, perhaps in a little tiny way, the course of our lives at a given moment and therefore sometimes I, I wonder do our lives turn on a pivot is our, our future slightly altered as a result of what's going on around us which is a it's a large thought but it feels like a very natural thought to me in in the past the softness of a day in ireland has been a kindness hasn't it a gentleness and we're just a few weeks we're in winter we're a few weeks away from christmas the flowers in your garden are blooming still things seem under control but it's too mild isn't it and nice weather now is more threatening in it there's something not quite right about it is there yes exactly I, i've been walking through the garden i've been admiring the the roses the chrysanthemums the asters all sorts of things which should be over and done by now in the middle of November and everything is blooming away as happy as can be and of course I'm happy as can be looking at them but behind that there there is such a sense of unease that we shouldn't have the leaves on the trees the roses really should be over by now and everything 
everything is beginning to go wrong. And those two senses of pleasure and unease, they're just about in balance in my head. But the more I think about it, the more that unease takes, takes over. It shouldn't be like this. We shouldn't be sitting in the sun, happy and, and feeling the rays at this time of the year. Things are beginning to go wrong. And of course, we all know that. And, and the unease we have is there, but we have caused it, haven't we? Yeah, we have. And this word Anthropocene is being used a lot more often as, as a way of describing the, the era of the world, which began at the end of the 18th century, began with the Industrial Revolution in, in Europe and which continues to the present day. So you can see this smoke damage, if you like, in the rings of trees, in the fossils, in the earth. The climate has changed and is changing. The seas are warmer than they were. Everything has begun to, if you like, speed up since the end of of the 18th century. And this catch-all phrase of Anthropocene is the the word that's used. I think we're going to be hearing a lot more of it in the years to come. In this Anthropocene era, of course, the weather has altered. It has intensified. In the course of that weekend in Derry, I went walking in the flatlands, the slobblands as they are unglamorously called, on the eastern shores of Loch Foyle. These landscapes were enclosed by the Victorians. The water is held back by high sea walls, turfed on one side and stone on the other. On one side, the wide and shallow and silver grey waters of the Loch. On the other, rich black soil and flat polder lands threaded by drainage channels. It's a Dutch landscape, expansive and unexpected in Ireland. The walking is marvellous here, luminous skies and airy spaces, and again, you can see the weather approaching from miles away. When I visit these secluded flatlands nowadays, their spacious beauty strikes me as it has always done. But more and more, I am assailed too by a sense of their obvious impermanence. They were water once, these fields, and they will surely become water again, someday, quite soon. Because I sense, we all sense, we all experience winter by winter now, a coil, a spring, tense and taut in the atmosphere. When the weather comes at us nowadays, it's more likely to be in a form that we cannot control. No rippling curtain of rainbow rain that gives us time to get inside and out of the elements, but as a force that hurls the sea uncontrollably at the coast. We have warmed the sea, and the sea has fueled the weather, and now it comes at us. On the landscapes we have ourselves created, our Anthropocene landscapes will be the first to disappear. I am aware of a personal reaction to miniaturise in the face of this shocking power. I examine, I almost peer at the enveloping natural world. The photographs of my garden in Dublin which spangle my Twitter account tend to be close-ups. I bend and gaze and adjust my lens again and again to capture a thorax or an abdomen, an anther or a stamen, a petal white but veined or flushed with pink, the first strings of the white currants, the world going about its orderly business. This orderly business doesn't work. Instead, we must do what we can. Small steps, necessary steps, domestic steps.
We wanted to put in a pond, so we have a little pond now with uh, water lilies and you know it looks very pretty and the little spring gurgles away. I'm very happy with that. Hopefully the frogs will come. We also have lots of fruit trees, green gauge trees, cherry trees with actual cherries growing on them and um, lots and lots of roses too. But also we, we wanted to extend the growing season this year so we put in a lot of autumn flowers for the late pollinators, chrysanthemums and asters and they have been such uh, glory over these last couple of weeks. What I appreciate about your dedication to gardening is that it is a slow art and it's sort of a performance art in a way Um, and you mentioned that you have snapshots of your garden on Twitter. Is putting images up there a way of trying to spread the word in terms of being active or is it a way of capturing the way you see the world? It's a bit of both. I do take a lot of pleasure in just looking, try to see how such and such a bloom looks, how it works, how an insect on a water lily, what it looks looks like. You don't want to do anything else except look, and there's huge pleasure in that. But it's also a way of spreading the word too, showing people who may not necessarily have thought of growing anything of their own, that it's easily done, that there's huge satisfaction to be had from it and that it's a a slow and patient art too. And that if something doesn't happen, fine. You just do something else. You plant something else instead. There's no right and there's no wrong. Your your garden is a cottage garden, but it has a lot of ornamental flowers as well. Um, And we've all learned about the tiny changes that we can all make to our own spaces, however small that patch might be, um, to be part of the solution towards climate change. Uh, What changes have you made here to become more ecologically conscious? We've kept things untidy. We've let things grow. We haven't tried to trim things back into a a tidy way. But there's also an increasing amount of habitat for the other creatures who want to come in and spend, spend time here. So that if you like, it's as much theirs as it is ours. It's a win-win situation, is the bottom line. Is there something about revising what we believe to be beautiful as well? So instead of it being something ornamental, that it doesn't need to be a perfectly sculpted flower, but if you do something practical or essential or addressing the urgency, that whatever you do might also be beautiful. I think that's exactly it. And it's interesting to see the way that the art of gardening, if if you put it that way, how it has changed over the years. If you imagine those highly manicured French gardens of the 17th and 18th centuries with their their elaborate topiary and so so on and not a dandelion out of place, nobody would look at at that nowadays and think, oh, I I want that. Instead, there's a a kind of shagginess is beauty nowadays. And I think more and more people see that, that it's not about trying to control nature is the key. It's about trying to live with nature, give space back to nature. What level of anxiety do you have about the speed of change and and how does that feed into your writing life? I think like a lot of people I feel increasing levels of anxiety and there is a sense that there's only so much that individuals can do but that we have to do it and, and wait for the systemic change to come along as well. In, in terms of, of my own writing, 
in a strange way I, I feel a sense of urgency to to get as much of my own work done as possible in a strange way in the time that we have left now that that sounds very apocalyptic I, I don't I don't really mean it like that I just feel I think that art is always political with a small p it doesn't exist in isolation from the world and therefore artists of all of all kinds can do all sorts of things to raise awareness you can talk more about the climate emergency or you can weave it more subtly if you like into into your work so that people read it and they, they respond on their own personal level to something that they glimpse that they feel is implied in your work so there's all sorts of ways in which we as artists can make a contribution and there isn't any wrong way which is a really good thing. My study window in Dublin overlooks the back garden and in city terms up into a big sky. The houses behind us are single storey meaning that the garden receives much light and meaning also that I can spend much time, too much time, looking up at the air and taking soundings of the sky. We spent quite a bit of time this last winter looking up and up at the sky and the weather, scratching our heads and shimmying up ladders. A friend sent me a parcel in the post. Surprise! Nesting boxes for the Swifts they occupy upon their return to Ireland in springtime. The Swifts are in trouble, one species among many in trouble, but they like our corner of South Central Dublin. They return each year to nest nearby and our new nest boxes were bespoke. They were fit for a swift. The key to attracting these birds' attention upon their return from their African wintering grounds is to play swift recordings, screeching calls early and late. So we read in the books, and with this in mind, for my birthday in March, my husband gave me a swift kit consisting of such recordings, wires and batteries, plus a plastic box to hold all this gear. The box was drilled to a north-facing wall, which is just how the Swifts like it. We used our electric drill, and an electric wire ran in through the window to the power socket. It was all emphatically unnatural. It was as far from natural as may be imagined. It was the Anthropocene in its full pomp and regalia, and we hoped the neighbours wouldn't object to the dawn screeching. Unnatural. But we knew that all this drilling and wiring and batteries and audio, well, it was for the best, given the circumstances. The Swifts are unlikely to survive extinction unless we, as Derek Mahan put it, work to do something, to speak on their behalf, or at least not to close the door again. We have made the world inhospitable for the Swifts, and now we must do what we can to reverse their decline. So we did. We did what was necessary to make our surroundings less ruinous for our companion species. And I found myself spending even more time than usual that spring, gazing up into the firmament. They arrived at the end of May, in the course of a long, light, settled evening, one small squadron screaming overhead. Others arrived in the following days. They wheeled and examined and surveyed and left our nesting boxes empty. Well, the books told us it might take a year or two before the Swifts deigned to move in with us. They are particular like that. We were downcast for a little while. I had imagined a smooth bonding process and my Twitter feed 
packed with smug photographs. Later, my spirits rebounded. I remembered how the Swifts, in truth, belong on the wing, out there in all weathers, soaring to unimaginable altitudes and sleeping there amid the airs of the stratosphere, measuring locations and likely destinations by the movements of the stars and affronts approaching from hundreds of miles away. They know their weather. Given all this, given the wonder of their lives, why would they readily settle for the back wall of our house? But perhaps they will another year. In the meantime, they will rise above the elements. And we, we will watch as the weather comes at us from west and from east. And with it now, we will see the future coming too. Thanks to Neil Hegarty for transporting me into weatherscapes and slublands. And I'll keep an eye out for the Swifts next spring. If you'd like to read more of Neil Hegarty's work and how he weaves elements of the natural world into his writing, you can read his novels Inch Levels and The Jewel, published by Head of Zeus. If you'd like to read more about Richard Kerwin, you can find plenty of his studies on the weather and much more in the transactions of the Royal Irish Academy. They're available in the RIA itself and online at Jester. The readings in this episode were by Declan Brennan. Thanks to the Royal Irish Academy for their support in creating this series, particularly to the librarians in the reading room and to Vanessa Carswell, Valeria Cavalli and Ruth Hegarty. And Shelf Marks is funded by the Arts Council Literature Project Award. <laughs>